that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we, complain, we, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. You may have your seat as Pastor Todd comes. Good morning. I am excited to start this series, but before I do that, I want to uh, go back to that song we just sang, Oh Sing Hallelujah. There's these one phrase that is said often in that song, uh, I'll say it this way. Uh, yes, Friday morning, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who, uh, they just had a miscarriage, and it's just the pain of that. And, you know, hearing some things that are happening in the church and the pain that's in the church, oftentimes Satan can use pain to discourage us, correct? He can use bad news to discourage us. And so yesterday I woke up and I was just praying for our church and praying for my friends and by God's sovereignty and goodness and kindness. He, I was in Psalm chapter uh, 13. I want to read that to you and then I want to go back to that song we sang and then we'll pray and then we'll jump into 1 John. Maybe this is how you feel this morning. This is what the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 13. He's got this plea to God. And he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemies exalt over me? And then he goes on and says this after he brings that cry and that plea from his chest, his heart, to God. He says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I was sitting singing that song and just was captivated by these three words. God is good. God is good. Even in the midst of our troubles, even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our heart, heartache and heartbreak, we can sing with assurance this morning, amen, that God is good. So I, I pray whatever God is going on in your heart, I, I uh, already this morning was with someone with tears around a loss for them and just thinking in my office this morning, God, how long will you hide your face from us? But I will trust in your steadfast love because you are good. We do have a good God that comforts us in our pain, amen? He's with us. Let me pray for us and then we're going to get after it here in First John this morning. Pray with me, please. God, you are good. And I pray that 
uh, you would protect our eyes and ears and hearts and minds from what Satan would say to us that you are not good, but you are good. Your word tells us over and over and over again of your goodness to us, your steadfast love for us. I pray that we would hold on to that this morning. And now, God, it's with great joy and anticipation that we get to start this little letter that the Apostle John wrote to your church. In so many ways, God, he is writing to us today, not just to the church 2,000 years ago. And I pray as we start this journey through this little letter that you would open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts to what you would have for us. That at the end of this time and this letter, we would really know you. Not just know about you, just not just know facts about you, but we would know the very heart of you. And our souls would rest in that. And then out of God, you would then bring us in this church to a closer relationship with one another because of our knowledge of you and our love for each other. We offer ourselves over these next 20 weeks or so as we journey through this small letter. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Maybe, just maybe James would have been a more... Uh, compelling sermon series that I wanted to teach through. But over the last several months of just reading this letter over and over again, praying through this letter, I really feel like God has something for us as a church in this little letter. I'll tell you what the letter is about. It's pretty right out in front. To know God and to love Him and to know one another and to love one another. If, if after the end of these 20 weeks or so we know and love God more, and we know and love each other more, we, we will accomplish what this letter has for us. But I want to start with the illustration, because here's my greatest fear as we go into this letter. Anyone ever received those scam emails? You know, like, hey, you give us all your information to some prince in Africa, and they're going to send you a lot of money. That, that letter, you, you remember those? I don't know about you, but I've been tricked a couple times in those. Like, it's like, man, that's kind of compelling. Anyone else? Like, eh, at first. And now it's like, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure you, like, actually sent your information. And I'm not saying that. But the first, like, go was like, man, that's pretty appealing. Like, you're give me a lot of money. Well, that's what's happening here in this letter. There's a scam that's been happening in this church. And so John wants to write to them not to get caught up in the scam. See, the scam is this. There's a group of people that were in the church. They weren't outside the church. They were inside the church. They were called the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of men and women who loved knowledge. Like their whole goal is if I can just know more information, then I'll achieve holiness. But what happened with the Gnostics was this. They began to love knowledge, but they couldn't make sense of the things that didn't make sense. 
You see, Christianity at its core doesn't make a lot of sense if you really peel back the layers of the onion. Like, there's never been anywhere else in history that a man was born without a earthly father other than Jesus. Like, on paper, that doesn't make sense, right? Like, Like, there was never a man that was fully God and fully man, ever. And nor will there ever be. So the Gnostics began to look at the details of Christianity and couldn't make sense of it. And so they began to plot and plan to try to make sense of what doesn't make sense outside of divine revelation to our hearts. And so what they said was this. This was the error that was coming into the church. They were going to debunk who Jesus was. And the way they did that was this. They were going to go and separate his divinity and his humanity. What I mean by that is they they couldn't believe that he was fully God and fully man in one place. And so the Gnostics began to teach this. Hey, there's no way that a good God, a perfect God, could dwell in bodily form because the body is so evil. So how could a good, perfect God dwell in evil? So they said this, this is how they they made rational sense of it. That, hey, the spirit and the body are totally separated. Now we know that not to be true. We're all those things in one thing. And so the Gnostic says, hey, you can do whatever you want with your body. You can't just do whatever you want with your soul. So they said, live however you want in bodily form, but you better protect the soul. Now we know that can't be true. Then they said this, well, how is it that Jesus was able to do the things he did in the body? Well, this is what they said. They said, Jesus wasn't born fully God. That Jesus became God in the flesh when you remember when he was baptized. When he was baptized, it says the Spirit of God descended onto him like love. And so they took that and said, hey, that must be the time that he became totally divine, was at his baptism. But then they said, but how would that happen? How could he then take on the sins of the world at the cross? So what they said was, at the cross is when his divine self left, and that's why he cries out to God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the moment of separation from body and soul. And so that's what they're teaching here in the church. Now, again, we could come to this letter and we could come and say to ourselves, we'd never get caught up in that. But I promise this. We've been caught up in a lot of that. One of the ways is this. It's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is this. You come to Jesus and he takes care of everything that you've ever wanted. Health, wealth, prosperity. Just come to Jesus. And if you come to Jesus and those things don't happen to you, it means you really haven't come to Jesus. Now again, that sounds enticing. Like who doesn't want to come to Jesus and become a millionaire? Sign me up for that. 
Who doesn't want to come to Jesus and get healing for everything? Sign me up for that. And that is what can happen even here in our church. And over and over again, we will see the attack on the, what I would say, the, the study of God or theology of God in the church. Even more than outside of the church. So John is writing them to warn them of those things. So the who is writing this is John the Apostle. Remember who John the Apostle was. John was with Jesus for those three and a half years. He walked with Jesus. This is the man who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote a first and second and third, the letter of John, and he wrote the revelation of God. He wrote five books of the New Testament. But he, he had a unique perspective of Jesus. Because he actually spent time with Jesus, and we'll see that here in the text. Many scholars say this. He wrote it between 18 and 19 AD, 90 AD. 85 and 90 AD. So late in his life, he's kind of at the tail end of his life. He's, many people think he had come off the island of Patmos. If you remember John, he got exiled to Patmos because of uh, who he was and what he was doing. So many scholars believe he was now in Ephesus pinning the, these letters to the church as a warning late in his life. And so what does John want us to get out of this letter? Remember, it's simply two things. To know God, to love God, and to know each other. He says this, if you want to know if you're in uh, your handy-dandy Bibles that I uh, gave out, if you don't have one, come find me. We'll order some more. But here's the theme verse of this small letter. I want to read it to us this morning, and I want to flip back uh, to the beginning. Everything hinges on this one verse. It's in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, I write these things. This is at the end of the letter. So he's saying, I've written all these things to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. So the whole book is going to show us how we can have assurance of eternal life. So as we go through this letter together, the question that you'll have to ask at the end of this letter is this. Do you have assurance of your eternal salvation? You see, because what was, going, what was happening in this time in the church was the Gnostics were debunking what it meant to have true salvation. And John is going to simply say, this is what it looks like. And he's going to tell us this over and over and over again. Here's the thing about the book of John. You're going to think, man, Todd, you could say it's basically three sermons over and over and over and over and it's like, Rather, rinse, repeat. So you might get bored, but John doesn't want you to get bored. He wants you to have conviction. So he's going to keep telling us the same thing. He's just going to say it in different ways. The thing is, he wants you to have eternal security. 
You'll know that through loving God, and you know if you love God by the way you love one another. It's the greatest commandment. Love God, love others. You love God and you love others, then you can rest assured that you have eternal security. What he's going to say is you can't just simply pray a prayer. He's saying if you really come to know Jesus, everything in your life will change and the way you love other people will change. And so if the way you've come to Jesus and you don't love other people, that hasn't changed, then you can probably doubt that you really love Jesus. So that's what John is getting at. He wants you and me to know, he wants the church to know that we really have eternal security. He's going to say it this way. This week, I would encourage you, in, that, in your Bibles, in that handbook I gave you, circle the word no. He uses that word, two different Greek words, but he uses it 40 different times. 40 different times he's going to say to God's people, you know that you know that you know. Here's how you know that you love God. Here's how you know that you love others. Here's how you know if you have eternal security. He says it over and over again. So this week, as a way of homework, take that book, take your Bible, and circle the 40 different no's in that letter. And then attach it to the verse. What is he saying for you to know? It's not just simply know stuff. He's not going to tell you what it is that you ought to know. So then go back and write out, hey, this is what he tells us we must know. And now John starts his little letter to us, how we are to know God and to love each other. Now here's the thing about 1 John. There's not too many places in the New Testament there, there, there isn't a salutation. Like, hey, I'm Paul and I'm writing this letter to you and it's good and it's full of grace and mercy in God. Like, if you look how Paul writes, he always says who, who's the author and what he's doing. John's like, I don't got time for that. Like, he, he just comes right out of the gates. And what does he come out of the gate with is simply this. He wants us to know something about Jesus. He doesn't start with John. Who does he start with? Jesus. And he says this. We're going to look at four things, five things this morning. Jesus is unchanging. Jesus is historical. Jesus is compelling. Jesus is unifying. And Jesus always brings joy. That's how he starts the letter. So let's go to how Jesus is unchanging. In the first few words, he says that which was from the beginning, comma. So he's going to point us all the way back to the beginning. If you know anything about the book of the Gospel of John, this is how he starts his gospel, the same words. Let me read those words to you this morning. This is how we know that Jesus is unchanging. He's always been and he always will be. This is what John says in the Gospel of John. In the beginning, or just the way he says it here, that which is from the beginning, he says this, was the word. That word logos is meaning Jesus. 
in the beginning was Jesus. It says, and the Word, or Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, Jesus, and without him, Jesus, nothing, not anything was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness overcomes it. He says this, Jesus has always been. Now, when you read 1 John and you read the Gospel of John, if you've read the Bible, it points us all the way back to the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And it talks about how did God create the, the Logos, the words. It was spoken into existence through Jesus. And so we can say this, this verse, John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1, are, are the prequel to everything else. It all starts with Jesus. And so John is coming out of the gates and says, Jesus has always been and will always be. He has never changed. He's always been the word of life. And he's always been with God. And so the first thing we have to ask us and ourselves this morning is this about Jesus. Do you believe he's unchanging? Because if you believe he's changing, then the rest of it won't matter. There's no truth, there's no foundation to stand on if there is shifting sand in who Jesus is. Or is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? How terrifying would it be to have a changing God? It would be like this. It would be like throwing uh, um, an anchor into a raging sea and that anchor grabbed nothing. You're going to be turned about every which way when the wind blows. But even now in our, our moments of disbelief, we can anchor ourselves in an unchanging God who is our firm foundation. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 at the tail end of his greatest sermon that's ever been preached. These are my words. They are a firm foundation. The wind may blow and, and the rains may rise, but nothing will take you off of the firm foundation. He's talking about the solid rock. Do we believe that this morning? Is God, through Jesus, unchanging from the beginning of time? Because really, there was no time. He's always been and he always will be. So he's unchanging. But John doesn't stop there. John now goes to say, and this unchanging God, there's history behind him. He's historical. He really did exist. See, there's one thing to say there's an unchanging God. But what if that unchanging God never existed? And so John is going to say, no, no, this is a man who really did come to this planet. There is a God who really did show up in the full deity of who he was with his full humanity. John's going to show us four places how he is true. And he's going to encapsulate them all at the end by saying this, 
he was made manifest among us. Like this God became God as a human with skin on. He manifested himself. He really did show up. That's what manifestation means. That, that something that was, could be un, unseen became seen. So Jesus became seen. He was a true character. He says this, let me tell you four ways that I have experienced Jesus in the flesh. He says this. He says that which is from the beginning, first, we have heard of him. We've heard from him, in another word. So the first place we can say is this. His teaching is real. Now think about who is saying this. This is John, the apostle. John would have been in that place on that mountainside that day when Jesus gave the greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He would have been near Jesus in the temple when he, this is the, the, the greatest Jesus juke that ever happened. Like this is the greatest mic drop you've ever seen on the planet. Is when they called upon Jesus in the synagogue and Jesus gets up, he looks through the scrolls, he picks the scroll of Isaiah and says, hey, all that you've been reading about, it's about me. He doesn't expound on it. He doesn't explain it. He just simply says, I'm the one who showed up, rolls the scroll back, puts it back in its place and sits down. He really does go like that with the, with the scroll. And they are dumbfounded. John would have seen that. John would have seen all those places where he would say, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, you'll love one another. John would have been at the Last Supper hearing what it looked like to actually love people. Think about the man who would have seen all the teaching. You see, we, we don't have that luxury. We have the readings of the teachings, but he actually heard the teachings. He goes on and says it this way. Not only have I heard these teachings, he says this. He says, but we have looked upon this man. What is John talking about? Now, this is the same man, John, that heard all the teaching, but he also says, let me tell you all the miracles I saw him do. Again, John would have been there when he saw Peter walking on the water. That's a miracle. That's not the miracle of Peter. That's the miracle of Jesus. He would have been there on that hillside when Jesus took the, the few loaves and the few fishes and broke them and gave them the 5,000 people. John would have saw that miracle. John would have saw the miracle of that little boy being raised from the dead. John would have saw blind people receiving sight. John would have seen lame men walking. John would have seen people receive hearing again. So John is saying, not only did he teach it, but he actually did it. So I've heard it and I've seen it. He says, but it doesn't stop there. Not only have I seen who Jesus is and heard who Jesus is, but he then says this, and you can miss it in the text and think, well, he's repeating himself twice. He says, I have seen it with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Well, what is he looking upon? He's not talking about the miracle. What John is saying in that text, when he looked upon, or it says this, there, another way to say it is this, 
he beheld something. He gazed upon something. He was captivated by something. Well, what would John have been captivated by? I believe that John is talking about when him and James and Peter went up on another mountain. Remember that other mountain that they went upon? It wasn't the mountain where he was feeding people. It was the mountain which we would call the Mount of Transfiguration where they really got to see the glory of God. Like John is saying, not only have I heard him teach, not only have I seen miracles, but I have seen the glory of God on this man. It's like it really happened. Again, John was one of the few. There were only 12 people that really got an intimate look at Jesus in some unique ways. But even within the 12, there's only three people that got to behold the glory of God. But there's something unique about John that's unique about all the other ones. You know what John's nickname was? The beloved one. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen with other disciples. But even in John's gospel, he never refers to himself, but we know he's referring to himself. He's the man that ran to the tomb faster than Peter and looked in and beheld the glory of God that was in the, in the tomb when even Jesus himself wasn't there. But it says this about John. He was beloved by Jesus. You see, there's the 12, there's the three, but there was always the one. This was Jesus' best friend. Remember who he says to his mother who would take care of her for the rest of his life. It was John at the bottom of the cross. Hey, you take care of her as if she's your mom. This is the man who's writing these things. He had seen Jesus in some unique ways. He says this, though. He, he doesn't end there. He doesn't say, not only have I seen his teaching or heard his teaching, not only have I seen his miracles, not only have I looked upon his glory, but then he says this. He says, We've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. Isn't it one thing to hear something, another thing to see something, another thing to behold something? Man, when you touch something, it really becomes real. And remember what John would have been talking about here in the text. He's talking about, no, I, I really did see the resurrected body of Jesus. I touched the resurrection. Remember what happens after the resurrection. Like they see Jesus and then it says they ran to Jesus and they beheld, they held on to Jesus. They watched Thomas poke Jesus in the sides and poke him through the hands. They touched a living God. He says, no, no, he's historically accurate. Now, now think of this in terms of a courtroom setting. Think of this, that like here it is, here John and the 12 disciples are put on trial to say, is there really this man Jesus? Well, it would be one thing to say, yeah, it's true. And then they say, have you ever heard him teach? You're like, nah. You ever see him do miracles? No. Nope. You ever beheld his glory? No. Nope. 
have you ever touched them? No, can't say that I have. Like their testimony would be debunked. But in that courtroom setting, John stands up and says, wait, 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 your honor. I've heard him teach. I've seen him do miracles. I've beheld his glory. But let me tell you one last thing. I've touched him. Like I was there on site when it happened. Now what kind of testimony does that hold up in court? It's like, man, that's a closed case. If you're on trial for something, you have an eyewitness account that says those four things, it's like, man, this, this trial is over. This is closed case. It doesn't matter what the defense attorney says. You are done. That is what John is saying. Like, I need to appeal to you. This really was Christ, the Son of God. Now, thank God, John doesn't stop there. Not only is Jesus never changing, not only is Jesus historical, but this is the plea now he has for you and I. Is Jesus compelling? Because he's saying, I've seen all these things, I've heard all these things, I've looked at his glory, I've touched him, but then he says this, let me tell you, he is the word of life. That life, the word of life, was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it, we proclaim it to you as eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, we proclaim to you. My question to you and me this morning, are those first two things true about Jesus? Is he unchanging to you? Is he true to you? Have you had such an experience with him? Because if those two things are happen, you see what John did with it. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. He says it three different ways. He says, let, let me say to you how compelling Jesus is to me. Jesus is so compelling, I'll testify to you about it. One writer says this about this phrase. He says it this, it's the authority of experience. When you testify to something, you are testifying with experience, your, your, your authority with the experience. Do you testify about who Jesus is to you? Because you've had such an experience with him? The next thing he says is this, not only do I testify to it, but I proclaim it to you. The writer goes on, his name is Dr. Stott, says this. He says, not only is it the authority of experience when you testify, but when you proclaim something, it is the authority of commission to something. It means you're calling someone to enter into what you see and are doing. When you proclaim something, you're hoping in that proclamation, it is motivating for change of another person. He's saying, so I testify to it, I'm calling you to something. And then he says this lastly, not only do I testify to it, not only do I proclaim it to you, but I'm going to continue to write about it. Like he can't get out of John enough. He can't talk about it enough. He can't proclaim it enough. He's got to write about it. Is Jesus that compelling to you?
You see, my greatest fear is this, that Jesus is not compelling to us. Do we testify about what he's done? Just in this last year, there's a lot of testimony about the power of God in this place. From healing people, to seeing people saved, to seeing people be obedient to God's call in their life, over and over and over and over again. Do we testify about that enough to each other? Like, like if we had an open mic next week, we ought to be here till midnight testifying about the goodness and the power of who Jesus is in our lives. Like, I ought to be like, no, no, we, we don't have enough time to keep going. We're going to come back. We're going to have to do round two next week. But my fear is this. Have we had such an experience with Jesus? Is he compelling to us? John goes on to say this, though. If Jesus is unchanging, if Jesus is historical, if Jesus is compelling, then this will happen. He said, those three things happen in your life. He says, this is what the byproduct is of this. It's in verse 3. He says, that which is we have seen, we have heard, we proclaim also to you. How can we do this? This is the reason for those first three. The reason is this. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says this so plain in that text. If you know God and you love God, you'll be in fellowship with God. And if you're in fellowship with God, you will be in fellowship with one another. Now, what does the word fellowship there mean? That's the key word in the text. The word fellowship means this, that we'll have total agreement, and I'm going to get into this in a few weeks, that we have total agreement with one another, we have total honesty with one another, and we share all things together with one another. There is a mission God's called us to, and nothing will keep us from being in fellowship with God, with each other, to accomplish that mission. So in other words, to say this, what is mine is yours, and what is yours is mine. That goes to my pockets to my resources, to my confession, to my sin. I am an open book with all things. What if we had that kind of fellowship? But that is what John is calling us to. This is the first three verses of his letter. He's not waiting to the end to say, hey, if you do all these things, then you have fellowship. He's like, no, let's start with fellowship. Do we have that, church? He says, because here's what happens when all those things are true about us as a church. When we really believe that Jesus is unchanging, we believe that he really is who he says he is. There's a historical evidence that Jesus walked this planet, that he is so compelling, we can't stop talking about him, that he's unified us. Then it says this, when those four things happen, look what happens in the text. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
with Jesus, there is always joy. Now, here's the difference between joy and happiness. John does not say, we are writing these things that you have complete happiness. Now, I wish he would have said that. Because here's the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is always based on our circumstances. So, if my out external circumstances are going well, my internal reality is going well. If my external reality is going poorly, what's going to happen in my internal reality? Just as poor. And John's saying, I'm not talking to you about that. Here's what's true about Jesus. Jesus does not care about your happiness. When we say that again, I didn't get very many amens. Jesus does not care if you're happy ever again. But Jesus is so concerned about your joy. Because joy is not rooted in our external circumstances. Joy is rooted in what and what alone? Him. So he's more concerned about my joy than he is about my happiness because if I have joy, then he knows I'm rooted in him. And John is saying, we have complete joy. You and I and us together will have joy. That's why we're writing these things. We can read the text and say, our joy is complete. No, he's saying, our joy, all of our joy will be complete together, held together in who Jesus is. And so I have this challenge for us. Do we have true joy this morning? I'm not saying you're not going to have difficulties. But even what we started this morning in that song, can we say in spite of our circumstances, God is good? In spite of my cancer, I can have joy. In spite of losing someone, I can have joy. I'm not saying you, can't, you won't have sadness, but you can have joy with sadness. It, it, it's a beautiful movie. I, I'm not going to, like, it's from Disney, so you, you have your way with Disney. But Disney has this movie called Inside Out. And Inside Out is about this little girl who has all these emotions. And the movie goes like this. There's joy and there's sadness, there's anger and there's fear and there's disgust. And those five people make up the brain, the heart. And what Joy says, she comes along and Joy's like, hey, we can't do joy and sadness, so sadness, you go be over in the corner. Literally. And she's like, she makes this big circle and she's like, Joy, you just, sadness, you just stand there. Well, what, what's happening in that movie is really about happiness, it's not about joy. Because Joy is looking for all these things to make sure life goes well for this girl. And then sadness, being sadness, kind of goes rogue. That I am not sitting in this circle. And she makes a mess of things. But the rest of the movie is about joy and sadness trying to figure out how to do this dance together. So I'm not saying this morning not to have sadness, not to have grief, not to have sorrow. Again, if we open the mic up to testimonies, we would talk about our tears. But if we had such an experience with God, we'd also find joy in the tears. We'd find joy in the loss. We'd find joy in the sorrow. Again, talking to many of you, where has God grown your faith the most? It's through trials. 
as much as we don't want to go through trials, we can come now and say, man, look what God has done. We have joy in all that God's doing in us. But it goes back to those four things. It starts with who? Jesus. That is what John is saying in this letter to us today. Do we really believe and know who Jesus is? Because here's the deal. If you do not know Jesus, you will never know joy. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, I can't find joy, I can't find joy. I'd say it's because you haven't been found by Christ. And you have not found Christ. So my plea to you this morning is what John is saying to us as he begins this letter. Can we say with boldness the way John says in that first few verses? I've heard Jesus. I've seen him with my eyes. I've looked, looked upon him and I've touched him. I've had an experience with him. Can you say that to be true? You see, you may never hear the audible words of Jesus. You may never see him actually perform miracles right in front of you. You may never see the way John saw the glory of God. And you may never experience his resurrected body the way John did. But I can promise you this. I can promise you this. You can hear his teachings. You can experience his miracles. You can behold his glory. And you can see his resurrected body. But start with his words. Why? The same way that he said it. That which is from the beginning. What was from the beginning? Word. God. He has left us all that you need. To have an intimate relationship with him. Let us begin there as we start this letter. Who is Jesus to us? Let me pray.